0: Yep, it's, it's, all right. Thank you to each of you who have prayed for me today, and thanks to Lisa for watching my kids yesterday so I could finish up this talk. Um, so, I will join the chorus of those who have gone before me and say that though it was very difficult for me to find time to write this talk, it has blessed me and worked wonders in my heart. Namely, because God's Word really is living and active. As it says in Hebrews, the Word of God is living and active, sharper. Than any double edged sword, it penetrates dividing bone from marrow. And if this book of Nehemiah is living and active, and we know it is, and if all of scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, and it is, then we can be sure that even this historical record of the rebuilding of temple walls many years ago is applicable to us in this year of personal crises, family tensions, our own grief, chaotic politics racial tension and an undercurrent of racism in our nation, border controls being regulated by tear gas and riots, the shrinking of the church in the West, the rising lack of concern for the unborn, the loss of a biblical model of marriage, foster care systems bursting at the seams, so many more tragic and difficult realities of our world. So let us not become weary in our Old Testament study because it is setting up the scene for the greatest rescue plan our aching world could have ever conceived of. If you look at the book of Nehemiah and where it is in the Old Testament, you may think it's about halfway through the Old Testament. So if we have like a Bible, right? We have Nehemiah here and the Old Testament ends wherever this string goes here. Mm-hmm. So it looks like it's at in the middle, but it's actually chronologically at the end of the Old Testament, which I didn't know um, until I studied for this. Um, So it's at the end of the Old Testament chronologically. The wisdom literature, psalms, prophetic books still follow, but the book of Nehemiah shows us the last picture of Old Testament history before the curtain of darkness comes down and 400 years of silence takes place. The next voices we hear in Scripture after this, historically, are the angels singing of Jesus to be born. Nehemiah. You know, I actually thought we would have had a son named, one of our four sons. We would have used the name Nehemiah at one point because of the significance it has played in my husband's life specifically. We joked we would call our son Nehi for short, (laughs) um, but we never used the name. So why did we think our son would be called Nehemiah? Well, when I first met Raja, he was a dashing Indian doctor sitting in the mess hall of a hospital guest house in Calcutta, India. He had on a ridiculous Superman t-shirt, was telling stories, pouring French press coffee for a table of eager listeners, and munching on dark chocolate with a big smile on his face. I mean, what more could I want? An Indian man with a loud, gregarious laughter pouring French press coffee, passing around dark chocolate, and sharing stories of his life as a rugged missionary doctor in the jungles of Northeast India. I was smitten. (laughs) Um, As I said there, Raja described life as a missionary doctor in Assam, India, He had joined the hospital as a psychiatrist and committed to help start a mental health program while surgeons continued running the surgical center. But once Raja arrived, all the other doctors left. No offense, Raja. Um, So there was 28-year-old Raja, a new graduate of psych residency, left alone in a surgical center in the middle of nowhere, India. A psychiatrist running a surgical center. That is a paradox if I've ever heard one. Not only was that the situation, but there was a dark spiritual climate around as well. There were numerous Muslim tribes surrounding the hospital um, that were putting a lot of pressure on the hospital. Riots, chaos, making it difficult for the hospital to run. Next, there were the staff of 120 people who needed paychecks, and Raja needed to figure out how to keep the hospital running to pay them their salaries. Then there was the reality that patients came to see Raja for counseling and psychiatric needs, but they were often overlooked by the woman in labor, or the man with a heart attack, or the child with a broken bone. The way triage works is that when a woman needs an emergency emergency C-section and the lady next to her needs counseling for depression, the C-section needs to happen first, but then the woman with depression gets moved further down the line. So Raja was overwhelmed. He needed to pay his staff, he needed to provide patient care, basically meaning keep people alive, and his heart and training were not for this administrative and surgical work. So he traveled to Delhi to tell his supervisors the, the situation and that he wasn't going to do it anymore. They told him, no problem, if you can't run it, we'll just shut the hospital down. Well, the hospital had been running for 72 years, founded by missionaries from Grand Rapids, Michigan, with Baptist mid-missions. Raja did not want to be known in history as a doctor who shut the hospital down, (laughs) so he stayed. Then he wept a lot and he prayed a lot. A bit like Nehemiah in the opening of chapter 1, verse 4 says, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Not only did he pray and fast and weep, but Raja invited others to do the same. Um, He invited some missionaries from another part of India to come, pray, and lead a retreat for the staff. While there, a missionary told Raja, the Lord is going to rebuild this hospital as in the days of Nehemiah. So Raja and the team at the hospital took Nehemiah as their battle plan slash business plan. They used Nehemiah as a guidebook to tell them how to rebuild the hospital. As chapter 2 says, with a brick in one hand and a sword in the other... They worked as doctor, as a doctor, nurses, cooks, cleaners, accountants, meaning bricks in one hand, and they had God's word in their hearts, sort of the spirit in the other hand. And they continued to pray and fast, and God did move. He rebuilt the hospital. Um, within six months, they had continued to pay everyone's salary. Five new doctors joined, and many other miracles happened. Raja named almost every building on the compound something after Nehemiah, even the nurse's hostel, um, is Nehemiah nurse's hostel. Um, A stone was placed in front of the hospital that declared, let us arise and rebuild. It's beautiful to share this story with you because it is something my family has personally experienced, and it's true. It's also powerful to read Nehemiah now because it not only reminds me of God's faithfulness in years past, but it encourages my heart for what I'm currently walking through. So first, some facts. In the English Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are two books, which we know, but in original Hebrew text, they are one book, and Nehemiah is simply the second portion of, the, of Ezra and Nehemiah joined together. We remember that the book of Ezra took place after the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and took them into exile. The book of Ezra opens up 50 years after that exile and taught us about what life was like when the first group moved back to rebuild their lives. So Zerubbabel had led a group of people Back to rebuild the temple, then 60 years later, Ezra went with a group to teach the Torah and rebuild the community and the temple. And now we have Nehemiah returning to rebuild the walls. Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah all have a few things in common that we should pay attention to. Each were sent by a Persian king whose heart was moved by God to send Israelites for these specific missions. Proverbs 21.1 says, The heart of the king is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. They were provided for, and then each time their triumphant attempts end with not a lot of success. We heard last week how Ezra commanded divorce for all the Israelites who had married foreign wives. This is discouraging because Malachi 2, 13-14 specifically says that God is not for this model of fixing families, and we don't read anywhere that God commanded Ezra to do this cleansing of sorts. So I guess what is most frustrating to me is that Ezra can't be the hero in my mind that I thought he was, and most likely Nehemiah won't be either, because these books are not about them. I was raised on so many books about heroes of the Bible, but the reality is the Bible is not about us, and it's not about the characters within it. It's about Jesus, and all the frustrations that Ezra and Nehemiah and the lack of fulfillment within their stories, lead us to feel, should only remind us that the best is yet to come, that these men are pictures of our King Jesus. So back to the facts. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Some commentaries say his only qualifications were his willingness. That is true to an extent, and that's really the most that all of us can offer is our willingness, but he was the cupbearer. And if you read about ancient monarchies, the cupbearer doesn't just give the drink to the king and like help him sip it, but he tastes it first. If it's poison, he dies, and then the king doesn't drink it. Um, so that's a pretty significant role at the hand of a king. Um, so the king would have really trusted Nehemiah and had a unique opportunity to know, and Nehemiah had the unique opportunity to know the king well, be by his side daily. And the king would have known his countenance enough to know when he was downcast. And it was helpful that his wife was next to him, which we pointed out in my group, (laughs) um, which is helpful because that is how the conversation got started that led to Nehemiah's journey. Also, this all happened in the month of Chislev, which represents November, December, which is neat because that's where we are right now on the calendar. And when it says the 20th year, that doesn't mean 20 BC like I first thought it was. That means the 20th year of the current ruler, which is King Artaxerxes, which, if you remember, was the same king who had halted the work on the temple during Ezra's time. Um, So here we are in the month of November and December at Susa, which is the king's winter residence, like his winter castle, and King Artaxerxes is on his throne when Nehemiah receives this letter telling him his people and Jerusalem are falling apart at the seams. This is catastrophic for him. In many ways, this seemed worse than the original destruction and exile by the Babylonians. Artaxerxes is Nehemiah's king, and he was the same king who had put a halt on the building with Ezra because he was concerned about the stability of Jerusalem, that they would become self-sustaining, and that they would stop paying taxes and tributes to him. So God's people had seen a Persian king's heart change and allow them to return, to rebuild, and now that he was changing his mind, it probably caused some panic in their hearts because it looked like God's plan was being usurped. And considering the prophecies that they had heard of this rebuilding of the temple, they were afraid that now God's word that was being fulfilled had been halted by the hearts of kings and evil men. Is that possible? Can evil men stop God's plan from taking place? How many of us have asked this same question? Um... Kathy Keller says it here, "...without a secure wall to defend the people from predators and the surrounding powerful nations, there would be no permanent restoration of Israelite culture. Their heritage, way of life would cease. They would be assimilated into the surrounding cultures. The word of God would be forgotten. There would be no more Israelite nation to bring forth God's promised Messiah." So the return of the exiles and the rebuilding of Jerusalem were not just a part of the normal longing for a national homeland. They were key ingredients in God's redemptive plan for the world. So Nehemiah's fear was, without an Israelite nation, how would the Messiah come into the world? This rebuilding must take place. So the king had stopped the rebuilding temporarily, and without the protection of sturdy walls, the local people had wreaked havoc on what was started. So Hananiah's news was tragic for Nehemiah. He feels a heavy burden, which we know um, had to have been placed from the Lord. Each of us, I am sure, has felt a heavy burden before, a burden that comes from tragic news in the world or our neighborhood or our family, and we know something needs to be done about it. This is what Nehemiah felt. It says he sat and wept. I am familiar with that response. I have sat and wept many times. I have sat and wept at the rebellion and lack of faith in the hearts of loved ones, I've sat and wept when I failed a nursing exam required to graduate college. I've sat and wept when I was working as a single woman in India at a children's home, witnessing perversion of God's word and abuse of children. I have sat and wept um, when my son died. I have sat and wept um, at my own grief and bitter heart and cynical spirit. After his death, I thought I would have grieved differently. I have sat and wept when my kids on earth still struggle hard. I sit and weep when I'm tired and my kids keep me up all night. I am familiar with sitting and weeping, um, but that is not the end of the song for Nehemiah. He remembered the refrain. Nehemiah fasted and prayed after he sat and wept, and he fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. How many times do I sing the chorus and forget that refrain? How many times do I sit, weep, and end the story there? Too many times. Nehemiah is teaching me that weeping is okay and merited many times, but the story doesn't have to stop there. We can sit, weep, and then look to the God of heaven. So Nehemiah prays, and we see a beautiful summary of his prayers here. He prays for four months. We know that because the next month mentioned in chapter 2 is Nisan, which represents March on the calendar. So he prayed all winter long. Um, because Nehemiah knew that more was at stake than Jewish culture, delicious food and festivals, and the Jewish people's preservation, because the Bible is not about us, but about God's plan to redeem our fallen, broken, bleeding world and to bring it back to its full glory, the glory that he brought when he breathed life into existence in Genesis. So how did he pray? He prayed the word of God. He knew the word of God, and he prayed and acted according to God's word. Nehemiah has paid attention as he worked his job of cupbearer. He knew the prophecies of old. He knew that God had been at work since the creation of the world and the fall into sin. He knows God's faithfulness starting with Adam and Eve and the promise of a Messiah to Eve in Genesis 3, to the provision of a ram in the thicket for Abraham and Isaac, to the blood on the doorways of the Israelites to save their children, to the parting of the sea and the rescue out of Egypt. He knows God has been faithful. So he comes to God with words of repentance Words of remembrance and reminders of what God has promised for His people and already done. How does He pray Scripture and remembrance of God? Um, we read it in chapter two, and it's, a, it's an absolutely beautiful prayer that I probably, I read part of it. O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments, let Your ear be attentive to the prayer of Your servant. I now confess the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's household have sinned. Remember your word that you commanded your servant Moses. Um, From there I will gather them and bring them out to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. So unless we read the Bible in light of the big picture, the Bible won't make sense to us. And unless we know God's word, it is hard for us to pray. We need to know God's word as women in the church and in our world, as Nehemiah did, We know now, as we look at the book of Nehemiah, perfectly stitched into our various translations of scripture, and all their pretty leather-bounded ways, that Nehemiah is making way for the Messiah Jesus, and we even know how it's going to happen. Nehemiah didn't exactly know how it would all happen, but he did know he was called to be faithful to God. I also think that's important for each of us here. We know the story of Jesus coming, and we know that Jesus will be born, and he will die, and he will come back. Um, And we know that one day all things will be made new, but we don't know how or when, but we're still called to be faithful to God as Nehemiah was right here in the midst of our days. We are called to know God's word, to be concerned for our nation and world and ultimately God's kingdom, and we're called to pray just as Nehemiah was. Um, And we do not know how God will use our prayers, our lives, and our service to advance his kingdom and usher in his glory, but we can be sure that he will. So do not become weary in doing good, and do not forget to pray, and do not be afraid to do hard things like Nehemiah did. So at the end of his prayer, he asked for favor in the front of this man. This man, we then learn, is King Artaxerxes, Reminder, the same man who halted the work during Ezra's time. He goes to give him his wine. The king sees that he is sad, and his wife sitting next to him also, and he's concerned and asks Nehemiah. Um, if Nehemiah had not been a faithful worker, dedicated, honest, and true-hearted— First of all, he probably would not be in the position anymore. And secondly, if he was in the position but not a good worker, I doubt the king would have taken notice of his sadness. But because he trusts Nehemiah, trusts Nehemiah, and knows that most days he shows up on time, committed and fulfills his duty, he can see this change in him on this day. This is a reminder to all of us. All of Nehemiah's days were not spent on thousand-mile journeys across deserts on the backs of camels rebuilding walls that he would be remembered for for all of his days in history. Most of his days were spent waking up on time, getting dressed, showing up to work, and faithfully fulfilling his task. And because of that faithfulness in the mundane, when it was time for him to go before the king for something out of the ordinary, the king listened and paid attention. This is an encouragement to me in the monotony of my days. It also reminds me of a movement among Christians in India right now. In South India, there's a group of women who pray most of their days and lead meetings and training sessions to mobilize Christians in South India to go to North India to evangelize North India. They're spending weeks praying and equipping teachers, cleaners, doctors, sweepers, accountants, cooks, government officials, and then sending them to those very same jobs in North India, teachers, cleaners, doctors, sweepers, accountants, government officials who pray while they work. They are being faithful in the mundane tasks of life, trusting that this whole story of Jesus is bigger than themselves, and trusting that though they are small in the overarching theme of the redemption of the world, their prayers can fight battles in the heavenly realms. For as Ephesians says, they know they're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. And they are not intimidated by the prime minister and his threats because they know that the heart of the king is like a stream of water in the hands of God. And the same is true for us and our current ruler and our current day-to-day life. life. One of my favorite verses in chapter 2 is the second half of verse 2. Then I was very much afraid. Really good to hear. Nehemiah was afraid, and rightly so, because he could have been killed on the spot for such an intense request. A bit like Esther. But also... Just that he was afraid encourages me, because I am afraid. I'm afraid of many things. I'm afraid of harm coming to my family. I'm afraid of another child of mine dying. I'm afraid of loved ones not coming to faith. I'm afraid of our adoption not working out. I'm afraid of not being able to raise support to go back to India. I'm afraid of any, any day I could give you a new thing that could bring me fear. I know fear, and it helps me to know that Nehemiah did too. But he didn't stop at the fear, just as he did not stop with the sitting and the weeping. He continued on in his mission, and he acted. He stated the condition of his people. The city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its cities have been destroyed by fire. The king asked what Nehemiah is requesting. He kind of knows Nehemiah's statement is rhetorical. He probably knows what he's asking, but he still asks. And what does Nehemiah do? He responds the same way to fear that he did to tears. He prays. So I pray to the God of heaven. Sally Lloyd-Jones calls these prayers arrow prayers, quick prayers to the Lord in the midst of the hard and busy of our lives. I am thankful that we can offer arrow prayers to the God of heaven and earth. Then he states his request that he can be given leave to go to the city and rebuild it. And he had a specific plan. He spent many months praying and also planning. He was strategic. He hadn't been lazy. He knew how long, and he knew what he needed. And it says that it pleased the king to do what he had asked. Um, I don't know if... I- I'll say it anyways. I forgot I put this in here. I imagine he responded in his mind the way that my son Rohan responded a few weeks ago when it was raining and he really wanted to go outside. He prayed out loud, God, will you please help the rain stop so I can go outside? And like 10 minutes later, the rain stopped, and he started just dancing around the house, (laughs) chanting, oh, yeah, baby God, listen to me. Oh, yeah, baby God, listen to me. (laughs) Complete unashamed, snapping his fingers, shaking his hips. I like to imagine Nehemiah dancing in the castle courtyard at the granting of this request. So not only did Nehemiah state his need to go back, but he also was specific on what provisions he needed when going. You may remember how Ezra specifically did not ask for an escort on his journey because he thought it may give an impression that he did not believe God's power or willingness to go with him. Ezra and his friends fasted and prayed and made that decision. Now here we are. We have Nehemiah fasting and praying and coming to a completely different decision. Raymond Brown says this in reference to that situation. One man's commitment to God precluded the escort. The other welcomed it. Ezra regarded soldiers as a lack of confidence in God's power. Nehemiah viewed it as evidence of God's superlative goodness. Christians frequently differ on important issues, and it's a mark of spiritual maturity if they can handle those differences creatively rather than engaging in damaging verbal warfare. First century believers differed on some questions, and Paul urged them to stop passing judgment on one another. We are bound to think differently on occasions. Before we hastily judge other believers or ostracize them, we must make every attempt to understand and love them, discern what we can learn from them, and make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual edification. For me, the contrast between Ezra and Nehemiah has been encouragement in the place where our family's at. As you know, we lived in India before. I had lived there six years and never raised support. Um, Just kind of lived by faith. I'll call that Ezra style. Um, And now we're going back in a year. And um, now that we're... So I'll go back to the sheet. Now that we're in a season of moving back to India with a larger family and a larger vision about what the next 5, 10, 15 years of our lives will look like, Um, we've decided through prayer and conversation with others to go with an organization that requires a lot more planning and much more financial provision. So I'll call this Nehemiah style. Um, So now I'm in a place of raising support. Eight years ago, I probably would have judged the missionary living on a salary in India. And now here I am, that very person. Um, I've been encouraged through this passage and picture of Ezra and Nehemiah that the Lord is at work in both ways and carries out his mission in different ways. Both sought prayer and fasting, and both were led to different decisions. So we get to the end of the passage, and it says, The good hand of my God was upon me. Dear ones, the good hand of our God is upon each of us today. He will be with you in all of your endeavors, even though that endeavor will not be what Nehemiah was called to specifically. And ultimately, what we should take away from Nehemiah is not that our God can use us, like he did in the days of Nehemiah, but that our God is still the miracle-working, king's heart-changing, covenant-keeping— protection (laughs) providing, wall rebuilding, prayer listening, normal people equipping, and always loving God, and that he is still at work, and that Nehemiah is only a shadow of what came through Jesus. Jesus left the comfort of heaven as Nehemiah left the comfort of the castle. Jesus came to dwell with broken people in the poverty of our sin and the disaster of our world, just as Nehemiah went to the rubble of Jerusalem to lead them to restoration. Jesus intercedes on our behalf at the hand of God the Father, just as Nehemiah prayed forgiveness for the sins of God's people. But at some point, the parallels between Nehemiah and Jesus stop and the shadows commence. Nehemiah could not complete the task that Jesus' death and resurrection did, because Jesus is the temple of the living God. He is not merely a builder of an earthly structure. Jesus knew that we would not uphold the commandments or statutes and rules that Moses gave, gave us, So he upheld the law for us. He became sin who knew no sin so we could become the righteousness of God. Jesus did not need walls because, as the prophet Zechariah says, the new Jerusalem will be a city without walls. The city of God is not marked off by a wall and existing in a temple we can build. Jesus' death and resurrection expanded the walls of Jerusalem, knocked them down. He himself is the temple, the city, and he himself is the wall of protection around us. He says, I will put my spirit in your hearts, by which you call out, Abba, Father. We are the new city dwellers of this holy city to come. God's city transcends every physical reality, so the whole earth is transformed in the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. The reality that Jesus brought to us as a new Nehemiah transcends history. His rebuilding didn't focus on a physical rebuilding, but on a spiritual rebuilding. He was not concerned about the walls. He was concerned about our hearts. Jesus came and rebuilt our hearts through his spirit. So this is what Jesus did for us. So what does it mean for us? We are living in the already, not yet, as the walls of our hearts are being rebuilt, and we are called to carry forward this message of hope and redemption to the world around us. We are here to proclaim his word and advance his kingdom forward, starting in the walls of our hearts and radically transforming the world around us. We intercede for others. We follow the burden God puts on our hearts, We rebuild the broken places around us, and we remember that one day we will be in the new city, rebuilt by the Lamb of God, and we will dwell in that city forever. Stop or pause? Stop.